The Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, California, is a beautiful and historical 27-room estate. Yet, in July 2011, it would become the scene of not one, but two suspicious deaths that happened within just two days of each other. Max Shacknai was six years old when he took a fall over a second-floor banister in the mansion, resulting in injuries that would ultimately lead to his death. Two days after this tragic accident, Rebecca Zahau, the girlfriend of Max's father, was found hanging naked from the mansion's balcony with her hands and feet bound and a cryptic note scribbled on her bedroom door. Are these two deaths connected? Did one lead to another? And did Rebecca Zahau kill herself, or was she the victim of something much more sinister? You're listening to Crime on My Mind, and this is the story of the death of Rebecca Zahau. Rebecca Zahau was born on March 15, 1979, in Falam, a small town in the Chin state of western Burma, now known as Myanmar. She was of Chin ethnicity, which is an ethnic group native to the Chin state. Rebecca was an incredibly smart and worldly woman. She spoke six languages and lived in several different countries throughout her life. Her father had been a political prisoner in their home country, and when he was released, the family fled to Germany, where they lived for 10 years. Rebecca then traveled to Austria for college, and about 10 years before her death, she immigrated to the United States and settled in Scottsdale, Arizona. Rebecca was only 32 years old at the time of her death. She was described as an extremely passionate, charming, and vibrant person. She and her older sister, Mary, were extremely close and would talk every day. Rebecca was a fitness buff. She also loved art and was a painter in her spare time. In 2002, Rebecca became married to a man who she had met while living in Scottsdale. Not much is known about this first marriage, but the couple separated and divorced within just a few years. Around 2008, Rebecca met a man named Jonah Shacknai. At the time, Rebecca was working as an ophthalmic technician in Scottsdale, and Jonah had come in for an eye exam. Jonah Shacknai was, and still is, a multimillionaire pharmaceutical executive. Jonah was, at the time, the CEO and founder of Medicis Pharmaceuticals and was the ninth highest paid CEO in Arizona. He was also 22 years older than Rebecca and had been married twice before. Jonah had two children who were in their teens at the time with his first wife. And he also had a son, Max Shacknai, with his second wife. Shortly after meeting, Rebecca and Jonah began dating, and they would eventually move in together. The relationship between Rebecca and Jonah's ex-wives was rocky, to say the least. Reportedly, Jonah's older teenage children also didn't have the best relationship with Rebecca. However, Rebecca was extremely close to Jonah's youngest son, Max. 
Rebecca eventually quit her job as an ophthalmic technician in December 2010, and after this, Rebecca spent a lot of time with Max, looking after and taking care of him. She lovingly called him Maxie, and it seems that Max was equally fond of Rebecca. Jonah's ex-wives were not the only ones who didn't approve of Rebecca's relationship with Jonah. Mary, who is Rebecca's older sister, also found their relationship to be a bit odd and maybe even suspicious, mainly because of the age difference between the two. Mary believed that Jonah was using Rebecca as a glorified nanny to look after his kids, and that Rebecca was merely a convenience to him. Regardless of other people's opinions on their relationship, Rebecca and Jonah seemed happy together. Of course, we can never know what a person's relationship truly is like, but from the outside looking in, Rebecca and Jonah seemed like a great couple. Let's now fast forward to the summer of 2011, when our story takes place. That summer, Jonah, Rebecca, and Max were staying in the Spreckles Mansion, which is a beautiful and historic estate in Coronado, California, that Jonah often used as a summer home. Now, Coronado is a very wealthy area. It's actually a land-tiered island off of San Diego. The Spreckles Mansion, where the family was staying, is a very large property, about 10,000 square feet, with 10 bedrooms and 11 bathrooms. Rebecca's teenage sister, Zena, was visiting Rebecca from Missouri for summer break and was staying in the mansion as well. The picturesque California summer would come to a screeching halt on July 11, 2011, when Coronado police received a frantic 911 call from Rebecca and her sister. At around 10.30 a.m. that day, Max had taken a fall over the second floor banister in the Spreckles mansion. At the time of the fall, Rebecca had been in the bathroom and Zena had been in the shower of a different bathroom when they were both startled by a loud crash. When Rebecca came running out of the bathroom, she discovered Max lying on the floor, unconscious and not breathing. Rebecca quickly instructed Zena to call 911 from her phone. In this 911 call, you can hear Rebecca in the background, frantically wailing and whimpering, sounding absolutely distraught, and saying over and over again, he's dead, he's dead. Rebecca also can be heard attempting CPR on Max during the call. Emergency responders arrived within minutes, and Max was rushed to Rady Children's Hospital. He was found to have spinal cord injuries that resulted in him being in a coma for several days. Max passed away from brain damage on July 16th, just five days after his accident. Max was only six years old at the time of his death. Coronado police would later determine that Max's manner of death was accidental. They concluded that Max had been running down the second floor hallway near the stairs when he fell over the railing. He either hit the chandelier or tried to grab onto it, resulting in the chandelier crashing to the floor. Max then hit the stair landing banister before falling to the ground. According to the San Diego Tribune, the medical examiner determined that Max had fell face first, resulting in damage to his facial bones, as well as spinal cord injuries, the latter of which affected his heart rate and breathing. Investigators guessed that he likely tripped over something, perhaps a soccer ball or the family dog, which were both in the vicinity at the time. It's also possible that Max was riding his scooter, which was also found at the scene, shortly before tripping and falling. Despite the medical examiner's report, in 2012, Max's mother, Dina Shacknai, 
would dispute the ruling that her son's death was an accident. When people talk about this case, they often frame it as the case of Rebecca Zahau, and that's what I did too when introducing this episode, because Rebecca's case is definitely the more unusual and bizarre one, and thus gets more attention. But you can't talk about Rebecca's death without also talking about Max's death. And that is because Rebecca's state of mind in the less than two days between Max's accident and the discovery of Rebecca's body are crucial to understanding the events that led up to her death. Even though Rebecca is heard yelling, he's dead, in the background of the 911 call, it turned out that Max actually was not dead, and he would not die for another five days after Rebecca had already passed. At the time of Rebecca's passing, Max was in a coma at the hospital, and Mary, who is Rebecca's sister and who has been the main advocate for reopening the investigation into Rebecca's death, has stated that this is one of the many reasons why she does not believe her sister died by suicide. Because at this point, there was still some hope, no matter how small, that Max's prognosis would improve and he would wake up from his coma. Mary also says that although Rebecca was very upset after Max's accident, She wasn't hysterical or so overcome with guilt and grief that she would resort to suicide, especially when there was a chance that Max would still survive. Instead, Rebecca was busy making phone calls to notify family about Max's condition, making plans to pick up family who were coming into town to see Max from the airport, getting clothes and food to bring to Jonah while he was at the hospital, and overall just being there for Jonah and Max during this very difficult time. At around 5 p.m. on July 11th, the day of Max's accident, Jonah texts Rebecca while he is at the hospital with Max. He says, this is awful, And Rebecca responds, Oh babe, I know. I have no words. I'm thinking about you and Maxie. He will be okay. The next day, July 12th, is a Tuesday. That morning, Rebecca takes Zena, her younger sister, to the airport so that she can return home to Missouri. I'm not sure if Zena had planned to return home that day anyways, or if her trip had been cut short due to Max's accident. Later that day, Rebecca also picks up Adam Shacknai, who is Jonah's younger brother, from the airport. Adam lived in Memphis, Tennessee at the time, and had flown into San Diego after hearing about Max's accident in order to be there for his brother and nephew. Adam Shacknai is very different from his brother. They have, I believe, around a six-year age gap, and while Jonah is a multi-millionaire corporate executive, Adam lived a very humble life. He worked as a tugboat captain in Memphis. So, after Rebecca picked Adam up from the airport, the two went directly to the hospital to see Max. They then returned to the Spreckles mansion, where they both would be staying that night. Adam would be staying in the guest house, which is separate but still part of the Spreckles compound. It's just across the courtyard from the main mansion. Rebecca would be staying in the main house, and Adam and Rebecca were the only two people staying in the mansion that night, as Jonah was staying with Max at the hospital. At 7.51 p.m. on July 12th, Rebecca sends her last text message of the night to Jonah. She says, Hi babe, left you Max's little monkey at the main lobby. Thought you might want to keep it in your pocket. I love you so much babe, and Max will make it through. Know both of you are in my heart constantly. Jonah responds, Thanks baby, two minutes later. 
Rebecca is also in contact with her sister, Mary, throughout the day. At 9.42 p.m., she sends a text to Mary that says, I can't believe this. It's a nightmare, and partially it's hard for me because I love him like my own, but he is not, and I need to be strong for Jonah. Rebecca also spoke with Mary three times on the phone that evening, with the last call being at around 9.25 p.m. So, if the sheriff department's theory is that Rebecca was so overwhelmed with guilt about what had happened that she committed suicide just hours after sending these texts, then that isn't the emotion I'm getting from these text messages. These messages are giving me the impression that although she is upset about what happened, she feels that she needs to be the strong one in this situation. She needs to take the role of the caretaker and support Jonah and the family through this. Of course, we know that many times the emotions that we portray outwardly to the world and to other people are not always congruent with what we are feeling inwardly. So, it is possible that these text messages were not an accurate representation of how Rebecca really felt in this moment. Although, given how close Rebecca was to her sister Mary, you would think that she would at least be honest with her about how she was feeling in that moment. At some point that night, Rebecca also receives a text message from Nina Romano. Nina is Dina Shacknai's twin sister. So there's Dina, who is Max's mom, and then there's Nina, who is her twin sister. So she is Max's aunt. Dina and Nina, I know, it's confusing. But Nina, Max's aunt, had also flown into Coronado the day of Max's accident. I believe that Rebecca had actually also been the one to pick up Nina from the airport the very day that Max had his accident. So at some point that night, Rebecca receives a message from Nina. We aren't exactly sure what this text message said, but according to CBS 8 News, Nina expressed in this text that she wanted to stop by the house and discuss Max's accident with Rebecca. Nina would later tell police that she even went by the house around 10 p.m. that night and rang the doorbell, but no one answered. She said all of the lights were off in the house except for the back bedroom, which was Rebecca's room. Now, I have heard conflicting reports about what time exactly Nina sent this text message to Rebecca. CBS 8 News reports that the text was sent at 10.48 p.m., but apparently Nina has stated that she believes that she had sent the text much earlier in the night. I'm also not sure if Nina sent the text before going over to the house or after, but I'm gonna make the assumption that it was sometime around 10 p.m. that this all took place. Nina sending the text to Rebecca and also stopping by the house. Either way, when no one answered the door, Nina says she assumed that Rebecca either was sleeping or just didn't want to talk to her, so she left. Also that night, a man named Jim Hager was riding his bike in the neighborhood with his family. He would later tell police that he saw a woman standing on the front porch of the Spreckles mansion that night, sometime between 10 and 10.30. This woman struck him as odd because she was kind of looking around and she didn't look like she lived there. He said this woman was around 5 feet 5 inches with dark brown or black hair pulled in a ponytail. She was also wearing an orange shirt. Now, Nina and Dina are twins, but they are fraternal twins, so they don't look identical. Dina, who is Max's mom, has dark hair, while Nina, her sister, has light hair. 
However, when shown pictures of the twins, Jim, the eyewitness, was certain that it was dark-haired Dina, not light-haired Nina, who he saw that night. He said he was sure that the woman he saw had dark hair, like Dina. However, Nina stands by her statement that she was alone when she stopped by the mansion that night. Around this time, there was also an older woman named Marsha, who was living just one house down from the Spreckles mansion. Marsha later told police that on that night of July 12th, she heard a woman screaming, help me, help me, through her window at around 11.30 p.m. She didn't call 911 at the time because the woman eventually stopped yelling. Other witnesses would also report loud music coming from the mansion that night, as if someone were having a party. The last activity on Rebecca's phone was at 12.50 a.m., when Rebecca's phone made a two-minute call to her own voicemail. The police department has stated that Rebecca listened to a voicemail that someone in the Shackney family, likely Jonah, had left her, informing her that Max's condition was deteriorating and that his prognosis was poor. However, this voicemail was, surprise, surprise, deleted, so we don't know for sure exactly what it said. The police department's theory is that this voice message was what tipped Rebecca off the edge and caused her to commit suicide. The next morning, at around 6.45 a.m., Adam said that he exited the guest house to go into the main house for some breakfast. When he stepped outside, though, he was met by a gruesome sight. Rebecca's body was found hanging from the bedroom balcony, which overlooked the courtyard. She was completely naked, with her hands tied behind her back and her feet bound together with rope. She also had a blue, long-sleeved t-shirt wrapped around her head and stuffed into her mouth to gag her. At 6.48 a.m., Adam calls 911. Now, emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of, uh, it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel, same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, sir, what is the address? I'm not sure. Uh, 19, I'm in the back house of 1928-something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay, sir, is she yeah. still alive? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Oh! 
Hello. Yes, sir. You the address. No, sir. I need the address. Be all right. You came here yesterday to pick up a little boy. Okay, right. sir. I wasn't working yesterday. I don't know what you're you talking about. Your records. Sir, I checked all of the records yesterday. I can't find anything on Ocean Boulevard. Can you tell me what the address is? I'm looking. Just, call, just start sending them towards the, toward the hotel. Okay, I understand that. I just need the exact address. I can't help you until I have the address. Ocean Boulevard. 1043 Ocean? Okay. Yeah. Is he still alive? I don't think so. Okay. Let me get the fire department. Sir, hang on. Let me get the fire department on the phone to help you, okay? Hang on just okay. a minute. also be heard doing CPR on Rebecca. Shortly after calling 911, Adam sends a text message to Jonah, his brother, informing him that Rebecca was dead. One of the first things that investigators did was collect fingerprints and DNA from the crime scene. On the balcony of Rebecca's bedroom, where she was hung from, there were a few sets of footprints. First, there was a set of footprints closest to the door to the balcony, with the heels together and the toes out in a V-shape. These prints were found to be consistent with Rebecca's, and it is presumed that she was standing with most of the weight on her heels, since her feet were bound together. A set of toe prints were found closer to the balcony railing, and these prints were also found to be Rebecca's. Investigators have said that this was Rebecca standing on her tippy toes in order to hoist herself off of the balcony. Next to these prints was a single male boot print. This was later supposedly identified as the boot print of a police officer who had been on the scene that day. Investigators also discovered that skiing rope had been taken from the garage of the mansion and had been cut into three different pieces. Two of the pieces had been used to tie Rebecca's hands behind her back as well as bind her feet. The third piece of rope was tied to the leg of the bed frame in the bedroom and was used to hang Rebecca. Near the door to the bedroom where Rebecca had supposedly hung herself from, there was a towel found on the floor. And next to the towel, there were four small specks of blood on the carpet. This was found to be Rebecca's blood. Rebecca was menstruating at this time, so it's believed that these specks of blood were her menstrual blood. It seems like just before her death, Rebecca had just gotten out of the shower, 
and something had caused her to stop in her tracks and drop her towel, resulting in the four specks of blood on the carpet. This is just speculation, though. Rebecca had experienced four instances of head trauma. These were explained by investigators as having resulted from her hitting the balcony during her fall. She had several superficial abrasions on her back, arms, and legs, which were also explained as resulting from her hitting several of the large plants that were under the balcony. She had ligature marks around her neck from the rope, which the medical examiner stated was consistent with the 10-foot drop from the top of the balcony. In addition, the left arm of her hyoid bone, which is a bone that sits in the neck, was fractured. The autopsy report concluded that the cause of death was a hanging and that the manner of death was a suicide, stating, quote, the lack of signs of a struggle or other footprints on the balcony indicate that she went over the balcony on her own, end quote. Rebecca's family vehemently disagreed with this ruling, and so they requested a second autopsy be done. This was performed by Dr. Cyril Wecht, a very well-known forensic pathologist who has consulted on cases such as the death of JFK, John Benet Ramsey, Elvis, and many more. According to the San Diego Tribune, Dr. Wecht concluded that Rebecca's death was likely not a suicide, but instead a homicide caused by manual strangulation instead of hanging. He pointed to several inconsistencies that led him to this conclusion. First of all, the fact that Rebecca's hyoid bone was broken points to someone manually strangling her rather than asphyxiation from a rope. The hyoid bone is a floating bone that lies quite high up in the neck. Because of this, if you have a thinner object, such as a rope, compressing the neck, the hyoid bone can float away to prevent damage. However, if you have something bigger, such as two large hands compressing the neck, then the hyoid bone is more likely to break. Dr. Wecht also said that the four hemorrhages on the right side of Rebecca's scalp were caused by blunt force trauma, possibly with a hard, rounded object that could have led to her losing consciousness before being thrown off of the balcony. Perhaps the most bizarre aspect of this case is the note that was found at the crime scene. Using black paint and a brush that belonged to Rebecca, someone had written the following message on the door of the bedroom. Quote, she saved him, can you save her? End quote. This note is assumed to be about Rebecca saving Max by doing CPR on him and calling 911. Investigators would claim that this was a type of suicide note that Rebecca left herself before she killed herself. However, Rebecca's family immediately questioned this because, well, it's clearly not a typical suicide note. If Rebecca did write this, then she is referring to herself in third person, which is strange. This note also says that Rebecca saved Max, but we now know that this isn't true because Max would eventually succumb to his injuries. And if Rebecca did kill herself after getting the news that Max's condition was worsening, then clearly she wasn't at that time thinking that she had saved Max, but instead that she had killed him. Mary, Rebecca's sister, also says that this note is not written in Rebecca's handwriting. The paint that was used to write this note was confirmed to be Rebecca's. Rebecca loved painting, so she kept paintbrushes and paint with her at all times. 
Rebecca's fingerprints were also found on the paint tube. The same black paint that was used on the door was also found around Rebecca's nipples and also on her inner thighs. In the Oxygen documentary about this case, entitled Death at the Mansion, the location of this paint on Rebecca's body is argued to be evidence that Rebecca was likely sexually assaulted by whoever wrote this note. All of the DNA and fingerprints found at the crime scene belonged to Rebecca, including the fingerprints on the bed frame, the door frame, the balcony door, and the two knives found in the bedroom. According to NBC San Diego, the large knife found at the scene had Rebecca's fingerprints on both sides of the blade, but didn't have any fingerprints on the handle. The doorknob of the door that led to the balcony, as well as the edge of the door, had no fingerprints on them, which is unusual considering that these are surfaces that commonly have fingerprints left on them. This could potentially indicate that someone had wiped down these surfaces sometime before investigators arrived. Rebecca's blood was also found on one of the knives that were at the scene. And this wasn't just a speck of blood on one side of the knife. Her blood was encircling the knife handle, as if the handle had been dipped in her blood. However, Rebecca had no cuts on her body that could be a possible source of this blood. It was also later determined that this was Rebecca's menstrual blood, which suggests that Rebecca had potentially been sexually assaulted by the knife handle before her death. The medical examiner's autopsy report did say that there were no signs of sexual assault, but like we talked about in our episodes on Faith Hedgepeth, Just because there are no signs of assault on autopsy doesn't mean that it didn't happen. If someone used this knife handle to sexually assault Rebecca, that wouldn't necessarily leave any signs that would be seen on autopsy. Let's now talk about the binding of Rebecca's hands and feet. This is one of the things that point many people away from the theory that this was a suicide. Now, investigators would say that Rebecca had tied herself up in order to prevent herself from self-rescuing. But the knots that were used to tie Rebecca up were not simple knots. The San Diego Sheriff's Department did release a video demonstration of a woman binding herself in the exact same manner that was found on Rebecca, in an attempt to prove that Rebecca could have done this to herself. You can pull up this video online to see for yourself, but essentially this woman ties her hands together in front of her rope before slipping one hand out, putting her hands behind her, and slipping her hand back in. To me, this video looks pretty complicated. It's definitely doable, but I would have to watch this video several times in order to be able to do it myself. But that's just me speaking as someone who has no experience with knot tying. I don't know if Rebecca had any knot tying skills. That would be something that I would be very interested in knowing if anyone has the answer to that. But as far as I know, she didn't. I'd also be interested in knowing whether there were any searches on her phone or computer that would indicate that she was researching knotting techniques before her death. But I'm assuming that nothing like that was found since we haven't heard about it. Now, a knotting expert did look at these knots and stated that they were similar to maritime knots, such as those used to cleat a boat. And if you remember, Adam Shackney was a tugboat captain, so he would have ample experience with this very type of knotting. At least two computers were found inside the mansion and seized by law enforcement. 
According to CBS 8, on at least one of these computers, investigators discovered that someone had searched for and watched Asian bondage porn and anime porn the day before Rebecca's death. We can't know for sure who exactly was the person who searched for these things. I have seen reports that whoever watched these videos also possessed an airline account. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm guessing it's the accounts that you use in order to be able to access internet while you're on a plane. And I don't think that information has been verified, but I thought it was interesting, so I figured I'd throw it out there. Rebecca had no history of depression or mental illness that we know of. However, in the weeks following her death, investigators would point to a few pieces of writing that she had on her phone as indicators of her state of mind in the months leading up to her death. One of these notes said, quote, Am I just too much of a coward to face the truth that I'm settling for the hope of a few happy years which may never come? Am I pretending that I will be content without ever having a child? End quote. And another one said, quote, It is my fault. I have allowed myself to be completely cut off from my own life. My life does not exist. End quote. I'm not sure when these notes were written, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't the night of her death. Also, the context of these notes wasn't included when investigators first introduced these pieces of writing, and the significance and meaning of the second note in particular is quite different once you know the context in which it was written. According to the Oxygen documentary that I mentioned before, the context that was left out of the second quote is this, quote, being talked to like a worthless person by kids who are spoiled, to be harassed and hated by two ex-wives, knowing well that every time my name is mentioned by them, it is to butcher it. Obviously, money was never a priority for our relationship. If it had been, I will have bid farewell by now. No amount of money is worth what I am going through. It is my own fault. I have allowed myself to be completely cut off from my own life. My life does not exist. End quote. So although law enforcement used these quotes out of context to paint a picture of a depressed and even suicidal woman, when you look at it in context, these notes are not that at all. This is Rebecca ranting and venting about having to take care of Jonah's kids and how she is treated by Jonah's ex-wives. Yet, law enforcement have taken this out of context in order to pigeonhole Rebecca into their narrative. So now that we have the timeline down, Let's look into some of the potential theories in this case. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that this is all speculation. As far as I know, none of these people have been named suspects in this case. And let's start with the person that everyone always turns to first, the boyfriend, who in this case was Jonah Shacknai. Jonah actually has a JD degree from Georgetown, and he started out his career in politics. He was a chief aide in the House of Representatives before transitioning to work at a law firm, and in 1988, he founded Medicis Pharmaceuticals, and he was the CEO of the company until shortly after Rebecca's death. On the day that Rebecca's body was found, Jonah was interviewed by police, and in my opinion, Jonah says a few things during this interview, as well as during subsequent interviews with police, that are interesting. According to the Oxygen documentary, during one of these interviews, he says about Rebecca, quote, 
She's Asian. She's not from America. She was born in Burma. She comes from a true Asian background. And they just look at things differently in terms of responsibility. I can't help but think she felt responsible because she was in the house. End quote. This idea that Jonah is basically implying that Rebecca killed herself in some sort of an Asian honor killing because of the guilt she felt for being there when Max had his accident, this would come up again over the course of this investigation. And although I can't know this for sure, I can't help but think that law enforcement had kind of gone into this investigation with their minds already made up about what happened. They knew that a child had been fatally injured at that same house while under Rebecca's care just two days before, and that, as you would expect, Rebecca was upset about this. And perhaps because of Rebecca's Asian heritage, she felt even more shameful than normal, resulting in her killing herself. And in this interview with the police, Jonah pushes this idea that Rebecca's death was some sort of an honor suicide to repent for Max's death, even though Max was still alive at this point. I also want to point out that this was the day that Rebecca was found, and Jonah seems to already have this explanation ready for her supposed suicide, readily blaming it on the fact that Rebecca was Asian. Never mind the fact that Rebecca hadn't even lived in Asia for decades at this point. But this wasn't the only instance of finger-pointing that Jonah would do in his interactions with the police. During an interview two days later, on July 15th, Jonah also suggests that his ex-wife, Dina Shaknai, could have had something to do with Rebecca's death. Jonah describes Dina as being, quote, almost giddy that Rebecca was dead end quote, and describes the relationship between Dina and Rebecca as being at the edge of civil. When the detective asks if he thought Dina was capable of something like this, Jonah responds, quote, she herself would not have been strong enough to subdue Rebecca. So the more interesting question, which I have to say I've contemplated, but I wouldn't like to think is true, would Dina have hired someone or gotten someone to do it? End quote. As if that wasn't enough, he also then brings up Rebecca's ex-husband, saying, quote, If you think this is really suspicious, she had an ex-husband. End quote. And this is true. Rebecca did have an ex-husband. However, at the time of Rebecca's death, he was proven to be in Arizona, so he couldn't have done this. Again, this is just two days after Rebecca's death, and Jonah is already pointing the finger at his ex-wife, Rebecca's ex-husband. He's also claiming that this was an honor suicide, which if that is what he is claiming, then why is he also now suggesting that his ex-wife may have been involved? He seems to have several different explanations ready for how and why Rebecca died. And of course, all of these explanations involve pointing the finger at someone else. As if that wasn't enough, near the end of this interview, Jonah also makes an interesting request. He asks the detective whether the police can release a statement saying that Jonah was not a suspect in this case. He says that because of public interest in him and his possible involvement in this case, his company's stock prices have been dropping, and he'd rather not have that. Again, this is just two days after Rebecca has died, and he's worried about his stock prices? Call me naive, but I think that's a little bit weird. So I do want to go back to this idea that Rebecca's death was some sort of a honor suicide. In the Oxygen documentary, which I've mentioned a few times right now, and it is definitely the most comprehensive look into this case that I found during my research, but during this, 
Investigators actually interview an expert on Asian honor suicides, and he says that although suicide is, in a sense, a way to regain your family's sense of honor, being naked is quite shameful in Asian cultures. And even Mary, Rebecca's sister, said that Rebecca would never kill herself in such a manner because she would know that her parents and her family would see this. So if Rebecca did kill herself in an attempt to regain her family's honor, then doing so naked would be in direct contrast to that. I also think that some of these suggestions that Rebecca killed herself in an Asian honor suicide have somewhat of a racist undertone, but that is just my opinion. Now, as strange or suspicious as Jonah Shacknai may have seemed during these police interviews, he did have an alibi for the night of Rebecca's death, and a pretty good alibi at that. Security cameras showed that he was at the children's hospital with Max pretty much the entire night that Rebecca was killed. Therefore, police eventually did rule him out as a suspect. Jonah was also a very influential figure in the San Diego County area. According to Dave Myers, who is a retired commander of the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and actually ran as a candidate for the position of sheriff, Jonah had ties to influential Republican politicians in the San Diego County area, and Myers believes that it is possible that Jonah somehow influenced the San Diego County Sheriff's Office to close the case as quickly as possible. Let's now talk about Dina and Nina. So again, I know it's kind of confusing. Dina is Max's mother and Jonah's ex-wife, while Nina is her fraternal twin sister. And the reason why some people suspect that Dina may have been involved is because she certainly had motive. Rebecca and Dina had a rocky relationship to begin with, but adding to that, Max had been gravely injured while under Rebecca's care. Dina reportedly blamed Rebecca for Max's accident and also suspected that foul play may have been involved. Dina also lived very close to the Spreckles mansion at that time, actually on the same island. Also, according to Oxygen, the back door of the Spreckles mansion was always left unlocked and Dina knew this. Nina Romano, Dina's twin, had flown in after Max's accident and was staying with Dina on the island. Nina and Dina are very close, and when interviewed by the police, Nina admitted that she found the circumstances of Max's death to be quite suspicious, and that she had asked Rebecca about exactly how Max had fell, but Rebecca didn't give her a straight answer. Because of this, Nina had texted Rebecca that night, asking if she could come over and talk. Nina even allegedly went by the house and rang the doorbell like we talked about, but no one answered. Now, police did interview Nina, and she had agreed to take a polygraph test. But that polygraph was scheduled for the day that Max ended up dying, so she canceled it but she says that they never called her to reschedule it. So it's pretty obvious why people began suspecting that Dina and Nina had something to do with Rebecca's death. They definitely had motive, and they also had the means, since they were pretty close by at the time of her death. We also have that eyewitness who says that it wasn't Nina he saw that night in front of the mansion, but instead Dina. Of course, we've talked about on this podcast how eyewitness testimony can be faulty, especially when it's dark like it was that night. However, Dina also had a pretty rock-solid alibi for that night. She was also at the hospital with Max all night, and she was spotted on security cameras, walking in and out of the hospital throughout the night. 
So there's really no way she could have been at the Spreckles mansion that night. And it turns out that it likely was Nina who had been by the mansion, as she had claimed. Nina also was staying at Dina's place that night with several other people who saw her there and can verify her alibi, essentially proving that she couldn't have been involved with Rebecca's death either. So with Jonah, Dina, and Nina having been alibied out, we're pretty much left with Adam Shackney, who was the last person to see Rebecca alive and the only other person at the mansion that night. Because of this, Adam was immediately questioned by police. He even did a polygraph, but the results of that were, you guessed it, inconclusive. After the San Diego Sheriff's Department announced that Rebecca's death would be classified as a suicide, Rebecca's family was expectedly outraged. In fact, they ended up filing a $10 million wrongful death lawsuit against Adam. In 2018, Adam was found liable for Rebecca's death in civil court. Adam later appealed this decision, and eventually, his insurance company and the Zahao family reached a settlement of $600,000. So, let's talk about this civil trial for a second. I'm not a lawyer, although sometimes I wish I was so I could co-host the prosecutor's podcast, but the burden of proof is a lot lower in civil court than it is in criminal court, so you don't have to prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt like you would in a criminal court of law. Despite this, I still think it's pretty significant that a civil jury found Adam responsible for Rebecca's death. I should note here that Adam Shackney vehemently denies all of these allegations and says that he had nothing to do with Rebecca's death. But there were several significant pieces of evidence that the Zahao family attorneys presented at this civil trial. Their argument was that this was a very sexual crime in nature, a crime that was meant to humiliate Rebecca in her death. The way that she was bound, gagged, and posed, completely naked, indicates that there was a sexual element to this crime, and I would agree with that. There's also the knife that we talked about, which had Rebecca's blood on all sides of the handle, as if someone had used it to penetrate her. Rebecca also had black paint found on her nipples and her inner thighs, consistent with someone pinching her nipples and groping her. But as the Zahao attorney Keith Greer explains in the Oxygen documentary, if Rebecca had done that herself, she would have had paint on her fingertips or on her palms, but none of that was found. Blood was also found on Rebecca's inner thigh. The police would say that this was leakage of menstrual blood, but Greer argues that this was transfer from the knife after it was used to sexually assault Rebecca. So despite the fact that there was no DNA and fingerprints found at the scene other than Rebecca's, the Zahal family attorneys were still able to present a compelling case to the jury. We talked about Dr. Wept and his testimony about the hyoid bone being broken and how that can indicate manual strangulation. Keith Greer also brought up the note as evidence that someone else had been in the bedroom that night. The note had said she saved him, presumably referring to Rebecca finding Max and doing CPR on him but there was a very limited amount of people who knew about that fact at that time. It was really only the family and close friends who knew the circumstances surrounding Max's accident, and one of those people was Adam. In the Oxygen documentary, Death at the Mansion, the 911 tape that we listened to earlier of Adam calling in after finding Rebecca's body was sent to a forensic audio engineer. This expert conducted something called voice fingerprinting. And I actually looked this up because I had never heard of it before, 
It's the idea that every person has a uniquely identifying voice that can be used to distinguish them from other people, kind of like a fingerprint. This expert analyzed the 911 tape using this technique, and he points to one instance where you can hear Adam scream, hold her still, in the background of the call, which would suggest that there was another person there with him. And after Adam says this, this expert states that a separate, completely distinct voice fingerprint can be heard in the background. This expert says this is another human voice. However, Adam maintains that he was alone when he found Rebecca. Another thing that Paul Holes, who is a renowned criminal investigator, points out in the documentary is that crime scene technicians only used a single swab to collect DNA from each item found at the crime scene. A single swab was taken from the paint tube, a single swab was taken from the bedroom door, and a single swab was taken from the writing on the wall, even though that writing encompassed the entire length of the door. Only a single swab of evidence was taken and tested for DNA. And Paul Holes argues that if only a single swab is taken, a lot of things can be missed. You can miss another person's DNA completely if it was on the item but wasn't swabbed. And this could explain why Adam's DNA wasn't found on the knife that he admits he used to cut down Rebecca because you would expect to find his prints on that. One thing that you should know about Adam is that he seems to have no filter. At least in the interviews that I've seen, He seems to just say the first thing that comes out of his mouth. So when Adam is interviewed by police the same day that he finds Rebecca, they ask him what he and Rebecca did after she picked him up from the airport. Adam confirms that they went to the hospital and then got back to the mansion sometime after 7 p.m. The detective asks if Adam went into the main house with Rebecca, and Adam responds, quote, I figured that's what we were going to do, but then she said, I'm going in. I just felt like, okay, you know, it's perfectly cool, you know, plus her being my brother's girlfriend and all opposite sex and everything, end quote. To me, this kind of makes it seem like he expected Rebecca to maybe invite him into the mansion, and maybe there's even some resentment there that she didn't invite him in. Of course, I could be completely wrong, but that's just my interpretation. So, we've reached the end of the case. Personally, I do not think that Rebecca Zahau killed herself. I think this was a homicide committed by someone close to her. And I think that the police department took a lot of missteps in their handling of this case and went into it with certain assumptions and a certain narrative. I also question how much of a role Jonah Shacknai's desire to have this case wrapped up in a neat little bow had on how the police department conducted their investigation. We know that Jonah was an influential figure in the San Diego community, so did he somehow influence the police department and their investigation? I'm not normally a conspiracy theorist, but I think it's possible. Not saying that's what happened, but it's a possibility. In terms of who killed Rebecca, I think most of the evidence we saw in the civil trial points to Adam playing a role. Whether he acted alone or not, I can't say. I lean towards he did act alone just because everyone else who might have helped him had an alibi that night, but the voice fingerprinting that was mentioned in the documentary is definitely intriguing and does beg the question of whether there was someone else there with Adam that morning. Even if Adam wasn't involved, I still think this case should be reopened and looked into again. There are just too many things that don't add up to me, and Rebecca and her family deserve better than what they got. 
As always, I'd love to hear what you think. If you're listening to this on YouTube, leave a comment with your theories. You can also find us on Instagram at Crime on My Mind Pod or on Twitter at Crime on My Mind. You can also send us an email with any feedback or theories, Crime on My Mind Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five star rating and review. It means more than you know. I'll see you all next week for a brand new case, but until then, you're listening to Crime on My Mind. Sources for this episode include the Oxygen documentary Death at the Mansion, Rebecca Zahal, Lynn Redmond, Joseph Free, Tammy Shahari, and Pavni Mittal's article for ABC News. Pauline Rappard, Dana Littlefield, and Christina Davis's article for the San Diego Union Tribune. David Godfredson's reporting for CBS 8 News. Lindsay Winkley's reporting for the San Diego Union Tribune. R. Stickney's reporting for NBC7 San Diego. And Fox 5 San Diego. So, with a crime that was meant to him.